as we are making our way through our study of the kingdom of heaven, we've looked at a number of things over the last several weeks, and we certainly can't review all of that. I do understand that for various reasons, sometimes folks are not able to be here um, and are going to miss some of this. And so even as we review, I hope that this brings you up to speed as far as just what we've been looking at recently. And um, uh, what we've been talking about recently is uh, the parables that Jesus gives about the kingdom of God. And it's the kingdom of God is like. And so then he would mention, okay, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And our study centered on Christ's parables in chapter 13 of Matthew. Uh, so what I want to do is, is begin uh, our review time here with our incomplete but adequate definition of a parable. And that is an often simple, made-up story that is compared to a spiritual or moral principle to help the hearer better understand that principle. And if you remember, a parable means to lay side by side. And so what Jesus would do is he would take an everyday uh, situation and lay that next to a spiritual principle and try to bring better light to that spiritual principle that he was talking about in, in these situations about the kingdom of God. Now we need to add just a couple of other things that were mentioned about uh, teaching the parables. First, uh, in, in these accounts that we're talking about here in Christ, they fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that the people would hear but not understand. Jesus explained that only those who are part of the kingdom were given the ability to understand these things. It doesn't mean that they couldn't comprehend what he was talking about. What it means is, is that they didn't get the spiritual aspect behind it. They, they were rebellious. All right. Also, Parables do not define the kingdom of God. They describe the kingdom of God. And that's a big difference that we need to understand because when we try to take a parable and make it defining what the kingdom of God is, we can come up with kind of some funky stuff, right? Some things that are not accurate. But as far as describing what the kingdom of God is, who, who are in the kingdom of God, things like that, that's what Jesus is doing here. And this is what he's proclaiming to sometimes a very, very large audience. So last week, our focus was on parables that explained the kingdom of God in the present, meaning the present that they were experiencing, but also even as, as we, relatively speaking, are, are experiencing the kingdom. And so I want to kind of go through those and, and uh, give us a little bit of a, of a uh, review of those specific ones. First, we had a farmer spreading seed. And if you remember, this was simply a farmer who would probably have a sack of seed that would go down the path in between the fields, and he would, he would scoop up the seed, and he would sow it. He would toss it out, and that was how they sowed the seed. The perspective, because we said that each of these had a little bit different perspectives on the kingdom, the perspective was defining those in the kingdom. Now, I said that it doesn't, the kingdom isn't defined by the parables, but the people in the kingdom were defined, right? People, com people were compared to soils growing seed. And what happened there was that the unbelievers were unfruitful. Those where the seed hit, regardless of, of you know, if we would translate it over, the person receiving the seed, which was what? God's word. 
So as the person received God's word, as the soil receives the seed, if, the, if there was no fruit, then that showed that they weren't, fruit, they weren't fruitful. They weren't a believer. They really weren't a follower of Christ. They weren't a part of the kingdom. The, believers, the believer has received the word, which then grows good works or fruit or produce. It's something that comes from a life of faith. All right. We'll talk more about this a little bit later. So we have the farmer spreading seed. The next one was the leaven in a batch of dough or, or you know, a leavening agent, something that was going to make the dough rise. And the perspective here was this was a big picture of the kingdom of God, Right. Jesus pictured the kingdom as leaven. If you remember, uh, the scripture said that, that the, the baker had this batch of leaven, and then they took from the old batch, the previous batch of bread, the previous batch of dough, what had already had the leaven in it, and then inserted it into this now big batch of dough that needed to rise. And then the leaven would then spread through the dough and eventually Take it over. It would, it would all become uh, something that had risen and was ready to bake. So the kingdom will continue to spread until its work is done. So the kingdom was likened to the leaven, and it's going to continue to do its work until it's finished the process. All right. And then one other one that we had was about finding treasure. I had to shrink that down a little bit because I was running out of room. Okay. So uh, the perspective here, and it's from a human perspective. Okay, the other one is really kind of from the big picture God's perspective. He's going to develop his kingdom until it's finished, right? But this one here is about acquiring the kingdom. How do you receive the kingdom of God? And so he talks about a man who stumbles upon treasure in a hidden field. And then he also talks about another guy who is a pearl dealer who finds this pearl of great worth. This was, this was like his career pearl, okay? So again, the first one is by accident. He finds this treasure. And, and you remember the story. He finds the treasure. He hides it again. He conceals it, goes, buys, sells all that he has to buy the field, right? Because he gets the field and what? The treasure that's in it, okay? And the same thing with the pearl dealer. He eventually purchases that pearl, but he has to sell everything that he owns to get that one special pearl. So whether we discover the kingdom or whether we have been searching spiritually, we give everything up for Christ who is greater than all of our possessions. That's the whole point of this, that, that we're all in because we understand who Jesus is. We understand who the Messiah, the chosen one is, and we want to place our faith and full confidence in him. We're not relying on anything else. We're all in trusting in him. Then lastly, and this is again a different perspective. So we're looking at almost like different snapshots of the same thing. It's still talking about the kingdom. But here we talk about a homeowner. Again, just a very simple, everyday example. And the homeowner, their perspective was promoting the kingdom of God. The homeowner, the scriptures told us there, had both new and old things that he could pull from what he had and, and be able to share that. And the idea here was, 
one who had been a student of the kingdom. Remember, we used that, we talked about that word scribe, right? Is to share. So first we have to understand what the kingdom is. Then we can share it. The scribe was a teacher of both old and new things learned and experienced. So what does the kingdom of God look like? From all these different snapshots, all these different angles, this last one is the kingdom of God is something that, that if we are experienced in it, if we have experienced it, we want to share it. We don't want to get stuck with just what we learned years and years ago. We don't want to get stuck on just that latest thing, something a little trendy or whatever. We, we want it to be something that is, is broad, that, that we, we take the full uh, understanding of the kingdom of God in our lives, and we want to be able to, to, to share that with other people. Okay, so that's what we've been looking at. Now, as we consider this, as we move into today's study, I want to explain just, just a couple more things uh, uh, about it. The kingdom is God's specific domain where he is king over all those who he's called into his kingdom. So in one sense, the kingdom of God, even prior to any of us, God is still king. Okay, but he... Uh, had the plan to send Christ and to develop his kingdom and to bring those who were of faith into it. The kingdom and the gospel, the gospel simply means good news, the good news of Jesus. The kingdom and the gospel cannot be separated from one another, but they are not identical. They're not the exact same thing. Proclaiming, right? Preaching, whatever you want to call it, the kingdom and proclaiming the gospel really are the same thing. Living out the gospel and living as if we are in the kingdom are the same thing. But the gospel is the message of the kingdom. The kingdom is actually what we'll be living in. Does that make sense? So if we're living out the gospel, we're living the message of the kingdom. We're living the message of the good news of Christ. But we're actually going to be in a real kingdom that will last forever, and that has started now. It just hasn't been completed yet. And so that's kind of what we've been looking at, and I want to bring us up to speed as we now approach a different, again, another snapshot, another camera angle as far as what the kingdom of God is all about. And so as we begin today, we're going to talk about a field of wheat and tares. Wheat and tares. And we'll, we'll explain to you what that whole idea of tares means um, as I said before, some of us, this is something that we have studied and read on our own and heard preached many times, whatever. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've heard about it. And so, you know, that's, that's basically my job to explain that. So turn with me to, first, uh, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And I'll be reading for you verses 24 through 30. Now, this parable is in two parts. One is Jesus telling it, and the other one is him explaining it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Now, just real quick, you glance around a little bit in your Bible there, you're going to see there's all these other parables that we looked at last week, right? So this is, this is part of this, this entire uh, series, so to speak, that Jesus is giving. So it says, another parable he put to them, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who vowed, vowed, who sowed seed, uh, good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest you gather up the tares, uh, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here we see this parable. It's, it's different from the other parable that we looked at last week of the farmer sowing seed. Um, and, and, and it was landing on the different types of soil. This parable is future-oriented. The other parable is more present-oriented. However, like the other parable about the sowing of the seeds, Jesus explains this parable as well. But this time, it's because his disciples asked him to. And so we're going to jump down to verse 36, and we're going to see uh, exactly what uh, Jesus says about this. And again, just like another parable that we looked at, we're going to talk about his explanation, not try to figure it out on our own. He's, he, he's given us an explanation. So starting in verse 33, I'm sorry, 36, and I'll read down to verse 43. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went to, to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. So this is, this is Satan himself. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And just a reminder there, when Jesus says that phrase, what he's saying is, you better listen. You better listen, Right? So let's go down through this as we have kind of talked, as we've read through it. Let's, let's just kind of go down through and, and, and gather where we're at. The sower, it says, is the son of man. The son of man is another name for the Messiah, another name for Christ. This name doesn't take away from the deity of Christ, but it accentuates the Messiah's humanity and his earthly ministry. So this was a title that was often used associating what Jesus was going to do for mankind. All right. The field is the world. The wheat or good seed are those who belong to the kingdom of God. The tares are bad seed and they belong to the kingdom of Satan. Now, I have a picture before you and I know that the, the, the type face is very small, but on the left hand side you see wheat and on the right hand side you see tares. Okay. Uh, the tares are what is called darnel. It's actually a grain 
that grows in the Middle East. I'm sure other parts of, of that world as well, that part of the world. But it's a type of ryegrass. Um, the grain is bitter and is even poisonous to humans. Okay? So, uh, but it's very difficult to tell them apart when they're growing together. You don't know the difference until the seeds of grain pop, right? Until the heads of grain pop. And so that's why these workers were saying, hey, didn't you have good seed? In other words, didn't you start out with wheat kernels when you planted the field? And so that's when we obviously hear about the enemy. So now you know what a, a, a tear is. It's a different kind of grain. It's not a good kind of grain. It's actually harmful. So the sower of the bad seed is Satan, our adversary, the enemy, the enemy of God. God's people and Satan's people are sown together. The harvest is the end of the age or the end of God's time of grace. The angels are God's harvesters. Now, we are not going to look at every little detail of this. We're looking at the bigger picture of the kingdom. That's what we've been doing through all of these. So I'm not going to try to, you know, talk about, okay, you know, the angels role in all of this. That's not where we're at, okay? So I just want you to know that that's where we're headed. But let's understand something. This is a perfect situation to highlight our need to be careful not to take figurative language too far. We've talked about that before. These are not literally God's offspring and Satan's offspring, right? Mankind was created in God's image and he created them all. But Satan didn't create anything. This is figurative language to make a point, not spiritualized language to formulate theology for every aspect of the story. Christ's explanation is in line with figurative language. He's simply delineating who are spiritually gods and who are spiritually Satan's. Does that make sense? Okay, so now as we move forward, the word for sons here is not just, you know, and, and that's, that's generic, right? It, it doesn't mean just children. You know, th these are God's kids and these are Satan's kids. The, the idea here is that they are descendants and they have the right of inheritance. So when we're talking about God's sons here as the good seed, we're talking about those who now have the right to all of the inheritance that God plans to give them. That's the kingdom, right? Now, what's interesting is these seeds, these plants at, at, at some point are allowed to exist together. And they're allowed to exist together because they haven't fully come to fruition. They haven't, they haven't matured out yet. Why would he go in and start cutting things down? Actually, it's explained to us, if you start trying to get rid of the good of the bad, what's going to happen? You can mistakenly cut out the good. And so again, this is just figurative language. But the point is, people are similar to a degree. Okay. So in the end, the tares, these, these other seeds, these other plants, are the enemy's descendants, are gathered and separated from the wheat, God's descendants. Okay, now again, we're not talking about, you know, biological children of God. We're talking about those who are spiritually his. The end result is that the tares are cast away into the fire. 
This is where Christ's explanation really stops being symbolic, right? Certainly, there's other aspects that are that he's, again, laying these things together, laying them side by side. He's now explaining the story. Uh, there's nothing like, what am I trying to say? Figurative about the fact that there is going to be judgment, all right? Jesus explains that they will experience Torment and judgment, those who are not the good seed. Now, if you notice in the text, Jesus specifically said that they practice lawlessness. They're identified by what they produce. Remember, we're not defining the kingdom, we're describing the kingdom. We're also describing here who are not of the kingdom. And it's those who practice lawlessness, who just sin as a lifestyle. It doesn't have to be some awful, terrible thing, but they're not practicing godliness because they don't know him. The sad irony is that the people who shake their fist at God and say, we will not have you rule over us. We will live as we choose to live, right? That's what people say today, right? I want to live the way I want to live. How dare you tell me? You're saying that I must conform to you? That I must live the way you want me to live? I don't think so. I've got my own life to live. I'm free. So they reject God. These are the same ones who then say, God is unjust because he doesn't save everyone. Some even go as far as to say, and I've heard this, because God rejects some, I will reject him. Folks, that doesn't make any sense. But again, we're talking about people who don't understand the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. They don't understand the good news of Christ. They don't understand that they lose their identity when they identify with Jesus by placing their full faith and confidence in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And let's not forget what Jesus said. What, what does it gain if someone, what, what, does, what does it benefit a person if someone gains the whole world but loses their own soul? See, we can't put a price on eternal life. But folks, people do it every day. And the price is, I want to do what I want to do now. It's just that simple. What's the difference? I mean, let's just stop for a minute. What's the difference? The difference is the grace of God and, and, and what he has done in someone's life, and then, and then we respond to that grace. Okay? Again, we're looking at things from, from, from a human perspective here, right? And, and from God's perspective. But the wheat are those whom Christ planted, and they are called the righteous. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say at the end here, right, after the, after the, the separation takes place and, and the tares, those, those who have rejected Christ are now rejected. Those who are then sent to eternal punishment. What does it say about, about the, um, the good seed, about the righteous? It says they will shine forth as the sun. This is really a reference to light in some ways, which is a picture of the righteousness that we are given in Christ. And we see this in Ephesians 5.8. For you were once darkness, 
That's where we all were, folks. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This good seed, the ones that Christ has redeemed, they will be a part of the eternal kingdom of their Father. And what I want you to remember here is, and you know, I'm not going to go back and read it specifically, but it talks about their Father. See, that's personal and that's possessive, right? He's their Father. There is a relationship that is here. So I want to emphasize that this is literally our God-given right. Remember, we are children, sons, inheritors of the kingdom. So this is our God-given right based upon the Lord bringing us into his family. And people talk about rights all the time, right? It's my right to do this and it's my right to do that. Listen, this is God giving us the right to be his children and God giving us the right to inherit an eternal kingdom, to be a part of that. To have all of the blessings that God has in store for those who are a part of his kingdom. Let's move on to the next one now. A fisherman's net. We're still in Matthew 13. We're going to read um, uh, Matthew 13 verses 47 through 50. Follow along as I look at, uh, again, another snapshot of the kingdom. The parable Uh, that we see here starts in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them to the furnace of fire and there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, this one is very similar to the one that we just looked at. But what I want us to understand here is um, it is still a future-oriented perspective. So we see the themes of the two parables are related because of the language that Jesus uses. Unlike both parables of, of farming, when we're told where the seed came from, this parable, however, begins with a full net of fish, Right? Now, this fits the storyline since everything that fish do is underwater. (laughs) And back then, they didn't have scuba gear or mini subs, right? So Jesus is just giving them the normal everyday observation. It also matches well with the purpose of the parable, which intends to have the primary focus on the netted fish. Not talking about where the fish come from. He's talking about the fish being in the net. The fish represent people. Instead of just two kinds, like the tares and the wheat, we have a huge variety that's given here, right? So I want to just just remind us that he talks about that there were some of every kind of fish that were in this net. Again, I don't want to go too overboard on this, but I think that Jesus is making a point. He refers, however, in a general sense to good fish and bad fish, right? Because if they were bad fish that were then discarded, then there were good fish that were kept. Now, we probably know what a good fish is. In, in, in this context, a good fish would be a fish that you can what? Eat, right? It's good for you, right? So what's a bad fish? 
there are a couple of possibilities. The first one would be that it would be an unclean fish according to the Jewish traditions, according to God's law. In other words, there were certain kind of fish that God said, don't eat of those. And by the way, sometimes we say, well, how come God said that? There's nothing wrong with eating, for example, a catfish, right? Because he said, don't eat fish without scales. Um, there could be any number of reasons we, we can decipher, but really what it comes down to is God's, God wanted his people to be recognizable. He wanted them to live differently. And so he gave them some laws to go by. He wanted them to be different. So the first one is that they could have been unclean, a forbidden fish to eat. But the second possibility is also, I think, well in play here. It could have uh, been a poor quality fish. Either it tasted bad, was very bony, or it was too much trouble to try to keep fresh, right? Some fish, they go bad really quickly. And so it could have been any number of reasons, but they were good and they were bad fish. Jesus also says that the net contained some of every kind, as I mentioned. Well, I'm just saying this for reference sake. The Mediterranean Sea has over 600 species of fish. I don't have a picture of all of them, okay? But if you think about it, we got to be careful again not to read too much into this. Jesus isn't saying that there are 600 kinds of people. Remember, fish represent people. He's not trying to be that specific. But he is talking about a, a variety of people, and it can mean any number of things. Some uh, scholars would say that it would mean all the above, all right? So I just want to give you an idea. First of all, different ethnic groups. The fish, all different kinds, would represent all different ethnic groups. A variety of personalities or character types, possibly. Or it could even be any number of social or intellectual standings, right? Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're smart or not, you know, educated, whatever it might be, from all different backgrounds, this is the flavor that Jesus is giving. What he's talking about is there's all different kinds of fish in here. There's all different kinds of people. Now, the net represents the final gathering of souls, doesn't it? This is when they're all gathered together. As Jesus goes from present tense parable to future tense real judgment, we see the angels again playing a role as God's assistants in dividing the people. Ultimately, in spite of all the differences the fish illustrate, the characteristics that matter the most are whether the person is evil or righteous, whether they are of Christ or not. We've already established in our previous studies that this righteousness, this goodness, is given to us, uh, to those who are in Christ, is given to us by Christ himself. Jesus died in our place to atone for, that means to satisfy the valid charges of our sins against God. And then Jesus miraculously changes our badness, our sinfulness. He exchanges that for his goodness, his righteousness. And then we get to take that on. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son applied to us. He no longer sees our sin. This too, again, is a future separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. And the reason why I mentioned that earlier part is because sometimes we can kind of get the idea, yeah, we're something special. 
we're in the kingdom. Right? Look at what we have done. No. It's all of God's grace. It's not anything that we have done. So now that brings us to the next parable, which is the parable of the landowner. We've already read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, but we're going to um, kind of take a a, a trip through this passage a little bit and and just refresh you on what we're talking about. The occasion is is the, the story of a landowner who's hiring for the day. He's hiring these day laborers to bring in his grape harvest. Now, we have grapes in our area. I don't know how they harvest their grapes, but these were ancient times. And, you know, you didn't have, you know, you know these extra hands sitting around all the time. You, you hired people specifically when a certain crop would come in. And so here's these day laborers. Now, his audience would have been very familiar with this practice. Us, maybe not so much. But, but that's, that's what he was doing. But at the same time, Jesus gives kind of an odd set of circumstances that both grabbed the attention of his audience, but also made an important point. And this odd circumstance is how many times the landowner recruited workers. This, This would not have been even, it probably would not have ever been done, that he would have gone, what was it, four or five times to the marketplace recruiting workers? Maybe a couple of times. But, but Jesus is making a point in this story, okay? That's what he's setting up. So all the workers, as I just said, are recruited at the town marketplace. He strikes up an agreement with the first group that they will receive a denarius for their work. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But he tells them, okay, this is what I want to pay you for a day's wage. And they're like, we got it, good, okay, we're set. The rest are told that they will be given a fair wage. Denarius is never used again until later on in the passage. But as he's making these agreements with these people, but here's the thing. Um, they're working less and less, right? He's, he's catching them later on in the day. Now, a denarius is just a, a, a coinage of the day, and it was equal to a day's wage in New Testament times. So, just just so that we're not thinking denarius, we're thinking, okay, what, what can I kind of uh, hitch my wagon to, so to speak, and understand in our day and age? Let's say that a, day's, a day laborer's wage is a little bit above minimum wage. We'll just round it out to $10 an hour, right? So the first group worked 12 hours. That means they agreed to $120 at the end of the day, right? That's pretty simple math, right? The second group worked nine hours. And what we see is that, you know, this kept going on. The hours dropped until the last group only worked one hour. One hour. In addition to not working as long as the other workers, later on we see that they, they were described as not having to or endure the heat of the day. Right? Um, I did a little bit of gardening at my parents' place yesterday. And uh, just because of where my schedule was, I had to endure the heat of the day. Uh, iced tea was flowing, okay? I mean, it was hot. Um, but some of my work happened later on in the day. Um, I wasn't the worker that only had to work the one last hour. Um, that would have been nice. But anyway, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, okay? So 
So here we have then, um, the time comes for the workers to be paid. Um, they come at the end of the day. They start with the ones who worked only one hour and went back down then through the ones who had been there for 12 hours. So not only had these first workers worked a full 12-hour day, they got to wait for everybody else to get paid first. But of course, that's part of Jesus' story, right? So those who had the short amount of time were thrilled to have received $120 for one hour's work. Now, folks, were they expecting that? What did he say? What did we read earlier? I'll pay you what's fair. Right? That's what he said. But, okay. I mean, you know, we want to work. We only got one hour. All right, let's do it. So they go, and then all of a sudden, they're getting handed 120 simoleons. That's not bad. I mean, there are some pretty good professions, like high-level professions that don't pay $120 an hour. All right, so they were happy. I would imagine that the next group was probably pretty happy as well. But we do know that when it got down to the last group, okay, they were not happy. <laughs> so uh, as, as, we, as we think about it, um, they were, uh, the last group comes in, right? And what, what does the master tell them? What does the landowner tell them? Well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Did we not have an agreement? Yeah. $120 for the day. Yes. Am I cheating you? No, but wait a minute. This is my field. This is the agreement that we made. It's my stuff. It's my money. I'm giving you exactly what I said I would give you. Hmm. The parable has a simple message, but a unique perspective on the kingdom. All receive the kingdom equally that are in it. Regardless of when or how or what their life experiences may have been, if they, if you, are in the kingdom you are going to experience the same kingdom that everyone else experiences. There isn't going to be this special place for the kingdom elite. Right? There isn't going to be a first-class compartment where your meals are a little bit nicer, get a little more leg room. Okay? We're all going to experience heaven. We're going to experience God's blessing. We're all going to have, we're not going to have to deal with sin anymore. We're not going to deal with pain anymore. It's equal to all. But wait a minute. You know, I, I can look at my own life and I can say, God saved me when I was just getting into my teenage years. And boy, you know what? I had to make a lot of choices in junior high and high school to do the right thing. I didn't say I always did the right thing, but I had to make choices. I did it to try. And even through adulthood, right? I, my, my choices, my, my works were based upon who I was, were based upon the fact that I was in the kingdom. What about these people? Man, they 
they kind of did everything they wanted to do. They had fun. <laughs> you know, fun, quotes, right? They were able to experience life without really any consequences because they're, you know, let's just say, let's throw out a number, they're 45 or they're 75 or they're at their deathbed and they get the same heaven I do? <laughs> That's not fair. There should be a, a better place. What about the people that suffer? Now, there are rewards that are different. People that give their life up for Christ, there's a reward. People that are persecuted, there's a reward. But the kingdom isn't different. And so we need to understand that as a very important point. Now, I wanted to cover this parable for its unique perspective, it's obviously something that's, that's in our context here. But when we wrap up the message, we're probably not going to refer back to this one. But I, I wanted to make sure that we understood, again, one more angle, one more snapshot, one more aspect of the kingdom. All right, so let's move forward here. The kingdom of God is like, and this is, the kingdom of God is like a master taking a long trip. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. And read for you verses 14 through 30. It's going to be a little bit of text here, but then we're going to go through it, okay? For the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling in a far country. Sorry, I'm distracting myself. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling in a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. His own servants. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two, two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We know that that is the picture language for now entering into the kingdom. to find out where I was. Verse 22. <laughs> he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Now, I should have mentioned this earlier. Talent was a, a um, measure of money, okay? We're going to get into that. But we think of talent as some ability, okay? That's actually where that came from. But this is the original idea, is that, is that it, there, was, there was a measurement of worth of something, Okay. Verse 26, 
But his Lord answered him and said, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Therefore, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received my own with interest. I mean, that's the least you could have done. That's the easy way out. Just deposit it, right? Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he who has abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, and there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, folks, you see a parallel there already, right? But I want us to go through this. So how much did the master of the house give his servants? I, I, just, I just wanted to, to put a, a, a human side to this. I'm not trying to be cute or anything. I just want us to wrap our mind around this, okay? So we got a couple of things here. A, a silver talent today would be worth $25,500, okay? Now, I'm doing the best I can. There's numbers all over the place, okay? But this is the weight of a talent, the weight of this amount of money, so to speak, Okay? A gold talent would be worth $1.75 million. So if we look at five silver talents or five gold talents, we're anywhere from 125 plus thousand or 27,000 to 8.75 million. So I do this basically just to say, you can decide how rich the uh, master was, okay? But think about this. He's going away on a long trip. We're not talking about a few months here. These guys had time to invest. We don't know where he's going. We don't know why. Again, in a parable, that's not our concern. What it comes down to is he was gone for a long time. And he wanted something productive to be happening. And so he takes what's his, he invests with his servants, and says, do something with this. So let's draw some comparisons here of the servants in the story. And there won't be many. We'll get to that in just a minute. There are all, they are all servants, right? And each one was given a responsibility to put the master's money to good use. Now, how about contrast? They were given different amounts to invest. Lastly, I want to look at the outcome, which really does have some comparisons and contrasts in it. So we're still in that same theme, but now we're looking at the outcome. The first two servants produced similar results in that they doubled their master's money that was entrusted to them. I would say that's pretty good stewardship, right? Somebody wants to double my money for me? I, I, sure. Both were equally blessed in proportion to their work. The third servant, however, produced nothing. The third servant, called a wicked servant, heard the same words from the master. He even said himself that he knew who the master was. The parable even credits him in that he feared the master, but he didn't do what the master told him to do. He didn't do it. So as we think about this, the ultimate thing that Jesus said about this servant was that he was unprofitable. Now, we're, we're going to kind of take... The, the conclusion of this parable and fold it into a conclusion for all of these parables that are similar here, okay? So as we now just conclude our message here, each of our parables today had an eternal component to them, didn't they? 
The primary purpose of our parables today is that, is that not everyone enters the kingdom. Those who do enter the kingdom are the good or the righteous. We've already defined that. We've already said who those people are. These parables didn't explain how to enter the kingdom. Nor did they describe how we should desire and embrace it. That was what the parables of the, the treasures did, right? The, the found treasure and the pearl of great price, that expensive pearl, that was how you do it. You, you give everything else up. And you grab hold of the kingdom. But let's review these main three main parables. Now I'm going to add one of Jesus' parables from last week. That's the parable of the soils. We touched on that a little bit. But let's take a look at this. First, the parable of the sower and the soils, right? There was unfruitful seed, unfruitful soil. There were actually three kinds. Remember? If you weren't here, you just got to trust me on that, okay? So we're now talking about the, the, the negative side of this, okay? So you, you, you have uh, these, these soils where the seed, the word of God was planted, and nothing actually was produced by it. There wasn't anything that came from it as far as the farmer was concerned, as far as God is concerned. Then we talked about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the bad seed or the tares. What happened? They were, it was, they were allowed to grow, but in the end, they showed their real fruit. And what happened in the end? They were separated to be, to be burned. The people that this represents were separated to judgment. The parable of the fisherman's net. There were good fish, but there's bad fish. Okay, I just gave you an example of a bad fish, by the way. They weren't allowed to eat this fish, whatever it is. So anyway, uh, as, as you think about it then, we have a, another comparison. Okay, And then lastly, the parable of the traveling master, an unprofitable servant. Well, what do they all have in common? They, from, from just the physical side of things, just the, the story side, the parable side, they weren't worth anything. From the spiritual side, they did not produce anything that looked like someone who was in the kingdom. Now again, we've got to remember, we're not talking about doing good things only. We're talking about righteous people doing things because they are in the kingdom. All right? Just to have a little levity here, uh, the last uh, servant was fired, okay? So uh, this one, anyway. Yeah, we needed that a little bit, right? Okay, all right. So let's move on to the next one here, the next part, which is the, the, the good, the righteous, those who are a part of the kingdom. First was the parable of the sowers and the soils. I mentioned that one before. And it was fruitful seed. Now remember what it said. Some... Uh, gave a hundredfold and some 60-fold and some 30-fold. I think I have my numbers right. But the whole point is this. It's not a matter of how much you do. That's between you and God. But 
someone who is a part of the kingdom is going to produce good works as a result. That, that's, how, that's how you identify someone who is in the kingdom. That's how the kingdom is described. The parable of the wheat and the tares. This, this wheat and this, and this other grain that looked a lot like it. Again, you have the good seed that was separated and taken into the barn, right? It was, it was, it was stored. These are people that are then brought into the kingdom. Parable of the fisherman's net. Separating the good and the bad fish. The good fish were kept. And then the parable of the traveling master. Profitable, obedient servants. They did something with what the master, now we'll translate this into spiritual things, in what God invested in them. They took and they invested that. They did the will of the master, the will of God, and they, they produced something spiritual as a result. There was something that came from the work that God did in them. Is all making sense, right? Here's what we need to understand. We don't produce to be a part of the kingdom. That would be using the parables to define the kingdom. Jesus is describing, is giving a description of someone who is a part of the kingdom. And what he says is that those who are part of the kingdom will be identified by their good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which are just many of us who grew up in the church and, you know, we're in children's ministries like Awana. We, we memorize these verses and everything. Please give it a fresh look this morning. And, and if you don't even know these verses, you are going to give it a fresh look. But look at what it says and, and, and compare it now to what we have just learned. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, now stop right there for a minute and let's think about this. By God's grace, you are a part of the kingdom. Okay? And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. It's not being good enough to go to heaven. It's not having enough merit badges. Right? It's not points. None of those things. It's by God's grace that we are rescued. And it goes on. Lest anyone should boast. Right? So let's just take this parable. Now we have uh, uh, the, the, the wheat harvest brought in. Right? And, and uh, some, some have a bigger wheat harvest than others. Right? <laughs> I'm a big man in the kingdom. No. Remember. It's equal. And it's all by God's grace. It's not what we earn. But look at what it says. Four. There, there, there's a continuation here of the thought. We're saved by grace, not, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. For we are his workmanship. We're God's project. If you want me to use a parable for a moment... We're in God's workshop. He's fashioning us into something that's useful. He's working on us. He's creating something uh, out of us. And it goes on. 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works. Folks, and, and I know this is just a silly analogy, but you know, last night I was hoeing. If you made hoes, right, garden hoes, and you sold them, and three strikes in, the, the head of the hoe falls off, and all I got is a stick left, I'm sorry, you didn't, you didn't do it right. If you made rakes, and the rake breaks in two, I can't use this anymore, and so on. You see what I'm saying? So here's the point. God is making us into something that does something. Notice, we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. It's a result of the grace of God. It's a result of salvation. Does that sound familiar? It does, doesn't it? But check this out. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word walk always is talking about, I shouldn't say always, in this kind of, kind of way it's used, it's talking about lifestyle. As we're living our lives, we're going to come across good works that God has prepared in advance for us to be able to accomplish. That's pretty awesome. So he's working on us to be productive, and he's giving us the opportunities to be productive. God's grace continues beyond just the point of our salvation. Okay? So all these things that we're talking about, as, as we kind of retrofit this back into the, the, the parables, all these things that Jesus is talking about, all Paul is saying is, as, he's, as the scriptures is fleshing this out, is he's saying, you know, the, the, these, these, these guys that are doing this, these guys are doing that, and, and they're accomplishing these things. Ultimately, it is God working in and through them and God preparing those things for them to do. And that's us, if we're in the kingdom. Folks, I'm just going to tell you very briefly here. What Jesus said went against the contemporary idea of the kingdom. They thought it was going to be a political entity. They thought that, that, that their king was going to come and they were going to have now, uh, they're going to restore the kingdom kind of like David and they were going to rule the world, right? It's similar to today as people believe if you're a good person and if your good outweighs your bad, then, then certainly you're going to go to heaven. If you're spiritual, if you're a spiritual person, certainly you're going to go to heaven. That's, that's weed thinking. That's bad fish thinking. I'm just being blunt. Because Jesus was. The result of that kind of thinking is eternal death. That's what Jesus said. It is a separation from him. Now remember, as we set this up, we explained. God's not picking anybody. He's just giving them what they deserve. Frankly, he's giving them what they want because ultimately they've rejected him. We can't come to God on our terms. Think about it. It's a kingdom. Folks, I know we're going over a little bit. Just hang on with me just for a moment. It's a kingdom. If I go to another kingdom and I say, I want to be a citizen, they're going to say, sure, 
As a matter of fact, we're going to make you king. Now, what they're going to say is, yeah, that, that's fine. Here's the paperwork. Here's the rules. Here's what you have to live by to be a citizen of our country. God makes the rules. Except we don't have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. It's simple, but it's really hard to do on a human basis. It's completely and totally trust Jesus. That's the message of the kingdom. But if we have done that, there's some things that Jesus describes as to how we're going to look if we are in the kingdom. Right? We're going to look a certain way. There's going to be some characteristics of somebody who is in the kingdom of God. And let's also not forget that when the time does come, when we enter the kingdom, we enter the kingdom as equals, as those who have been completely, totally saved by God's grace, saved by God, not by our works. And so we enter into his presence, we enter into heaven by what Christ has done for us and we get all the benefits good job enter into my rest let's pray heavenly father there may be someone here who is restless Spiritually, they have been searching, similar to the man who was just trying to find that pearl, that one pearl of his career. Lord, maybe there's someone here who, this is a discovery for them. This is not something that they were looking for, but we've talked about Jesus and and you are working in their heart and life. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they'll respond to you in faith. Lord, I I pray for those of us who are part of the kingdom. We've trusted Christ as our Savior. You've done a work in our lives, and you've, you've given us the right to be called your children. Heavenly Father, I pray that we'll show it. I pray that we'll live it. I pray that it will be something that is of evidence in our lives, that we show forth the character of Christ, and we speak forth the message of Christ. God, we thank you for your grace. We do struggle sometimes at your justice. Not because we don't understand it, but because on a very human, a very raw level, Lord, we know people that we care about who don't have any regard for you. Or they're trying to do things on their own. They're trying to find a plan B into the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you will just work in each of their lives. So many represented here, Lord. We want them to know you. I pray that the the seed, the word that has been planted in them, would grow up and and produce something that you would just give them that faith that they need. 
And again, Father, I pray that we will be obedient to what your kingdom calls us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.